1: Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems. I don't make them. So I thought I'd save you some time this week. I went to the whitehouse.gov website and I read the entire proposed $1.9 trillion, that's trillion with a T, proposal, commonly referred to as the Biden COVID-19 relief plan. We've heard a lot about this top Biden administration priority. 68% of voters polled are now hopeful that the Biden COVID relief plan will finally help us to turn the corner of the disease and the resulting economic malaise. It's so urgent, the Democrats declare, that we must go it alone, no time to negotiate with those parsimonious Republicans. And to be objective and honest, the Republicans have earned some of that aggression with their behavior over the last four years. There is a lot in this plan, and a lot of it is both urgent and necessary. But as usual, truly normal legislation passed in the dark of night when speed is deemed More important than substance. (laughs) That's where the devil really is in the details of the proposal. So at the top, at the top, first, before we say anything else, 1.9 trillion with a T. Well, you know what? It's just a number. Basically, it just sounded good. Because the actual legislation taking that glossy term and then turning it into legal language, you know, that determines how the agencies are going to determine how to spend the money. Well, you know what? (laughs) Not a line of that is even written yet. But the Democrats passed the budget resolution to initiate the spending along a party line vote and that alone makes me nervous. But all hope for fiscal sanity is not lost. There is time for two important things to happen. First, a modicum of bipartisanship might just be both possible and necessary. Budget reconciliation only works if all 50 Democratic senators vote for the bill and Vice President Harris casts The deciding tie-breaking vote. And if appearances are not deceiving, Senator Schumer, the new majority leader, does not have the 50 Senate votes to pass the package as it was originally proposed. And all of the headlines ignore the fact that House Democratic majority is only five seats. The so-called blue dog Democrats, the ones who come from purple states, the ones who have to go back and explain fiscal insanity to their unhappy constituents, they're the ones that took the heaviest losses in November. So the ones that survived are more than chastened about big spending and big social engineering. So if they're not on board with the details of this spending package, If it isn't somewhat restrained, (laughs) you don't have enough votes to pass it in the House either. The second thing that gives us hope is that a floor debate on what's in the legislation will likely expose some of its more questionable aspects to public scrutiny helping to reshape the legislation to get some Republican amendments into the legislation to help to shape and carefully spend that money. And it could, in fact, maybe not get to a 60 vote majority in the Senate, but we could, with a good floor debate, actually get, and it's something that President Biden wants, We could get, let's say, 55 votes for the measure without the vice president. And wouldn't that be good to have just a small beginning of a return to a normal congressional process where there is give and take on the philosophies of the two parties, big government, less government? and more compromise around what is best for the most Americans. So having set that stage, like the president, I think it's important to go big to finally get COVID under control. But we also need to remember that Congress has already appropriated in excess of $4 trillion, again, with $80, in COVID relief in two prior bills. And those two prior bills have not had the desired impact. So going big again means targeting the spending where it will do the most good for impacted individuals, and I cannot focus enough on and real small businesses. Independent mom and pop shops, restaurants, and other types of small retail and wholesale and manufacturing establishments have just been brutalized in this COVID emergency. And it is not your local Red Robin out outlet you know, your franchisee who needs the most help. It is those small mom and pop operations, many of them in minority communities that have to be a focus of the small business spending in this coming legislation. We need more PPP money, that's the Paycheck Protection Plan, but we need it really to be spent on small business. That's half the jobs in the country. So let's talk about the bad news and how some of the spending can help with that. The unemployment numbers continue to climb. Workers have been displaced during the pandemic, need the $400 a week in additional federal unemployment payments that are proposed in this plan. But I don't know if you need to cut them off in June. I don't think that's realistic. We should budget that money for the calendar year. If jobs spring back faster, well, then the money won't get spent. But there should be no more cliffhangers here for the unemployed. There should be no more last minute deals just before they're thrown out of their homes or can't feed their children. This has to be, we've got your back and we've got your back for as long as it is absolutely necessary to have your back. That's also true for people who've been unemployed longer than four months and need extended benefits. That's a minimum thing that the American people and the American taxpayer need to do to be their brother's keeper. Stimulus payments of $600, well, you know, I don't know about you, I didn't get one, are not big enough for people at the lower end of the American economy who cannot work remotely. But you know, while the $1,400 that Biden campaigned on and that the Georgia senators campaigned on can help these people to survive, it's important. It can help them to get caught up on rent or mortgage delinquencies. But the couple making $150,000, both of them working remotely, do not need an extra tax-free contribution to their savings account paid for by their great-great-great-grandchildren. They don't need that future vacation money paid for by their great-great-great-great-grandchildren or some other just-because purchases. Writing in the Wall Street Journal last week, former Texas Senator Phil Graham pointed out that About There's about a 17%, let me repeat that, a 17% increase in individual savings as an indicator of what most Americans are doing with their remote work savings. You know, it's a very positive development that consumer savings are up. That's a really good thing. That has been a major worry in the, in the American economy, which is not as strong as they tell us, they like to tell us it is, um, for many, many years. So the money that you're saving by not stopping at Starbucks for a latte and a um, muffin on your way to work every day for these remote workers is largely gone into savings. And that's a good thing. So do we need to give them at the expense of their great-great-great-great-grandchildren another $2,800, $3,200 if they have children? That's a question because what we have seen, while we've seen the 17% increase in individual savings, and we think that's a really good thing, we have also seen... So many container ships carrying Chinese manufactured consumer goods that they have to wait for a pier to tie up at, to unload in Los Angeles and other West Coast harbors. And that demand for consumer goods is driven by those same remote worker savings and those stimulus payments. And so that means those borrowed dollars are going to China. I want to help people who need help. If you need $1,400 to get caught up on your rent, by all means, we need to do that, or eventually we're going to have an, ev- an eviction crisis, whether it comes in June or September. We need to figure this out. So Republicans want to provide the $1,400 checks, only to those who have an annual income of less than $40,000 for an individual or $80,000 for a couple with additional ben- benefits for dependent children under 17. You know, that may be closer to the mark, but it it's a bit low. Uh, the average income for a family of four in the United States taken in totality last year was $70,000. Okay. So what if, what if in, in, in the interest of our great-great-great-grandchildren, I'm going to keep saying that because this debt crisis is now that big, in their interest and also uh, in the interest of gaining some bipartisan support for this measure, maybe we could all meet in the middle and say, we're going to send checks of $1,400 to people who make $50,000 as an individual or $100,000 as a family. And then maybe, you know, if we feel like, well, that's totally unfair, maybe we give a little, a lot less, you know, $700 or whatever to those families that have those higher incomes because we, in the last go-round, gave it to everyone up to $330,000 a year, to whom $3,000 is a rounding error. So think about that. We, We could do the right thing with that $1,400, and we could do it in a bipartisan way, and wouldn't that be wonderful? Now, there's something even more important than that one-time $1,400, and that is the statement that no human being in the United States of America should go hungry, that we have 20 or 30 or 40 million, it depends on whose numbers you're using, people who are food insecure in this nation is both intolerable and inexcusable. And, you know, there are a whole lot of ways that we could overcome food insecurity in this country that would be better than the current programs, you know, Things like food banks, if you've seen those terrible lines, or SNAP, um, which is hard to get, or school nutrition programs, which right now are under extreme pressure because we aren't having in-person school, and similar programs, you know, um, those were all put together as one time, you know, um, plug the hole, plug the gap. Uh, kind of programs that then became mandatory spending just came you know developed a life of their own and 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 we need to rethink that entire process but in the urgency of this moment when 20 30 40 maybe 50 million people are food insecure that moment speaks to the lowest common denominator solution just spend more money to keep distributing food. Whatever it is we need to spend, we need to spend it. As equally important, no one in this country should ever be cold. They, nobody in this country should be ni- denied um, housing and food and, and, and warmth. And so the programs that provide assistance to f- heat your home this winter is, in my view, money well spent. And and it shouldn't even be a matter of debate. But we should, in the long run, look for better ways to provide those basic necessities. How do we get, you know, getting out of this pandemic, now that we've talked about um, the things that need to happen today today, that I hope are happening today, regardless of what Congress is doing at the moment. Let's talk about what's really important in this plan. And that is vaccine manufacturing and vaccine distribution. That is priority one for every aspect of the COVID relief program. Because if we don't get people vaccinated, we will not end this pandemic, it will get worse. So whatever we gotta do, we got to do it and that starts with wearing your mask i don't know what the governor of iowa is thinking about opening all the bars and and removing all the mask and capacity requirements for super bowl just when we're getting the numbers down from christmas and new year but that's an aside that doesn't that doesn't affect the immediate urgency So the COVID relief plan anticipates spending another $25 billion just to buy vaccine. Is that enough? Will that get us to the other side? Maybe we need a little more. I'd I'd rather err on the side of too much there in that particular part of the plan than too little. Whatever we have to spend... To obtain FDA-approved vaccines made in the USA will pay huge dividends in health, in survival rates, in getting kids back to school, in getting life back to normal. FEMA has already jumped into the breach that was left by the Trump administration's failure to help the states to plan for the administration of the vaccine into individual arms, rapidly, equitably, safely. And this relief bill contains the money to backfill what FEMA is already spending. But even more important comes the decision this week to deploy active-duty military to make this task faster and yes, less expensive. Their salaries are already budgeted for in the defense budget. They're gonna get paid no matter what, right? So the cost to deploy them is nothing more than the per diem cost if they have to travel to areas of the country where they're not stationed. So there's no recruiting no onboarding expense. There's no delay in recruiting the the people. They can deploy in days. In California, we expect to see active duty military manning an entire vaccination facility in Oakland, California next week. Even before the bill is is, is written, they'll be putting shots in arms. And when they're done putting shots in arms, they can return to their normal duty stations uh, and, and go on with their normal military careers. They bring supply chain and procurement skills that are badly needed in this crisis. Nobody builds faster or with more flexibility than the United States military. So they can quickly create mass vaccination sites. We saw them build field hospitals uh, to help in New York and in California and in other places last year. And they were a miracle. And the United States military has the medical skills needed to administer the vaccine. So in one sentence, The U.S. military is a low-cost, ready-made human resource. And congratulations to the Biden administration for using that resource. It will save money. It will save lives because it will save time. On the other hand, you know, there are public schools. Public schools have to have some additional things in order to reopen. But as Phil Graham pointed out in his Wall Street Journal article, only about $2 billion of the $70 billion voted for schools in the December package has been spent at this point. There's $68 billion out there waiting for somebody to say, um, we need X number of sheets of plexiglass. The figure points to the challenge of spending both wisely and in a timely manner at the same time. How do we use this money the most efficiently? Because you have to consider that this is twice as much money as the annual appropriation for federal um, uh, education spending. Now, one of the objectives is to reduce class sizes. so. There are two ways to do that. One is quick and the other one can't be done within the 100 days. One is to go to a hybrid model. So you have half the kids in class on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, half the kids in class on Tuesday, Thursday, and they're doing remote school the other, the other days. The alternative to that to maintain the smaller class sizes needed for social distancing is to hire more teachers. That is a longer lead time activity and it can't be done in a hundred days and done well. In addition, older schools with antiquated HVAC systems like most of New York City will take longer to retrofit to Make sure that there is sufficient ventilation in each classroom and that we're not cross we're not cross ventilating classrooms so that if there is, God forbid, COVID in one that we don't spread it to others. OK, that's going to take time to procure the new HVAC systems, time to install them um, in, you know, order them, install them, etc. cetera. Um, and it's going to cost a lot of money but it's a one-time expenditure. So it shouldn't be, become part of the permanent education budget. We also can't reopen schools or daycares without millions of daily rapid test kids, kits. And we've got to spend money, see above, to, to manufacture those. The same is true of PPE. So I'm questioning if you pass the legislation on March 1st, a hundred days from then is June. So are we really saying, and I say this with grave concern, that most of the money that they've already, the Congress has already appropriated to get schools ready to reopen in a COVID environment, or that might be appropriated in this bill, will be in place only when schools would normally reopen at the end of the summer? Is that reasonable? Would that mean, and is that something that needs to be covered in this particular COVID relief plan, summer school for all? We're going to need other remediation efforts in the 21-22 school year, let's say longer school days, Um, more after-school tutoring, et cetera, to overcome some of the learning deficits that are a byproduct of um, online school for even the brightest students in the best of our public schools? So does this plan include enough money to finally make sure we have broadband access to all so that all of the kids can actually get online and stay online? Or, and this is a matter for debate, should the money for that broadband expansion be part of the second Biden proposal, the Build Back Better program that he expects to follow maybe late this year or next year to really get this economy moving Um, in the direction we would all like. I ask all these questions because it comes down to one big question. Should in this emergency appropriation, this COVID emergency relief, that we must pass in the dark of night, should we appropriate $135 billion under the guise of an emergency making it $205 billion in a matter of four months? Or should we spend that 70 billion already appropriated and then re-examine as a part of the larger a larger discussion of a reform of public education, what remains to be done at a later moment? I would argue that if you put too much money out right now you, the result you're going to get is a bigger baseline budget not an improvement in education it just seems to work that way if you notice you know and and the same questions must be asked of daycare facilities um you know we've got to help there, there we go back to the small business we, we've got to help those small mom and pop daycare facilities to pay their rent, pay their staff, et cetera, be able to buy the, the test kits uh, so that they can keep the rate of infection down and they can help more parents be able to return to work. Um, and so that's why it's, it's important for COVID relief to do two things. It's gotta keep these childcare facilities that are open, open and it needs to make it possible for some of the bigger you know let's say multi location childcare options that are available to parents to reopen as parents are able to go back to their normal work environments although I'm not sure all of them will another thing that's really important in this bill that I really applaud is safe working conditions You know, we saw a lot about bad working conditions in places we all depend on like meat processing plants and a Trump administration laxity about improving those conditions. And safe working conditions in every factory, in every school, everywhere in America, that's vital to beating back the virus and to restoring us to some modicum of normal life. And so the pressure of time says, we got to spend money today in supplemental sick pay and additional testing sites and more rapid tests and more contact tracing in order to avoid an elongation of this catastrophe we're all experiencing. Because that the to do the latter means spending more in the long run. But this seems like a really good place to switch to the buts that are in this proposal. All of these urgent needs, right up to funding summer school for everyone. Sorry about that, kids. But you know what? The national security depends on you guys learning how to rewrite and, and cipher. All of these urgent priorities, everything I've bored you with in the last 20 minutes or so, could be accomplished for half the size of the proposed legislation. According to the Bipartisan Policy Center, the number one center for this kind of economic research, uh, they've put out a plan um, that's available online and it would cost just about a trillion dollars to accomplish all of this. So, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine that members of Congress use must pass legislation as a tool for their versions of social engineering, their little goodie bags for the local constituency. You know, they bury their little um, uh, pork barrel items in these must pass bills. And you know what happens as a result? They make permanent changes to our tax structure and our entitlement programs and they forever classify a lot of the spending as mandatory entitlements, and therefore it never, ever, ever again is impacted by things like budget limits or redebated. While we need to improve our ability to do contract tracing, it's not really a new thing. In this COVID emergency, we've needed to do more of it, but it's done by every county public health organization in the country on a routine basis for various kinds of illness. So the question in my mind is do we need to add 100,000 career public service positions in this COVID emergency bill? These are not medical personnel. And the Biden plan says, oh, after the pandemic, we'll just transition them to do something in community clinics. Well, you know, speaking just for me, you gotta tell me more about what, where, when, and how, the specifics of this portion of the plan to get any support from me. What kind of skills are needed? What public health role will these people play that warrants obligating tens of hundreds of millions of dollars of spending into the future for their lifetime civil service careers? Again, we have lots of military personnel who are immediately available and do not add a penny or very many pennies to the deficit who can do a lot of this work in an emergency. And we don't have to go and hire them and background them and, you know, all the time that's spent in that. And we don't incur an additional long-term financial obligation for our great-great-great-great-grandchildren. The same goes for a major expansion of the earned income tax increases that are proposed. And major increases in federal spending for what they call quality child care centers for all children you know what, that is a new mandatory entitlement program. You don't pass that buried in an emergency legislation in the dark of night. The same is true of the $15 an hour national minimum wage. I'm not arguing that some of these proposals don't have merit, well, some have more than others, but they're not COVID relief. These are larger systemic issues that should be considered and debated as part of President Biden's post-COVID build back better plan. They should not be swept under the cloak of emergency from whence they will just roll on into infinity without really being measured as an improvement to our society or our economy just an additional burden on the generations yet unborn. And you know, just to point to how much better this could, solving some of these problems could be, just this week, Utah's two senators, Romney and Lee, both conservative Republicans, have introduced a proposal to create a new permanent approach to the child credit which would greatly reduce child poverty it would eliminate it actually while and 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 pay for it by consolidating several, several several other existing programs that are hard to use into one larger focused benefit and they pay for it with changes to the tax law it's a start you know There is a great deal that can be done to reform, reorganize and modernize federal assistance to American families and to do it better at a lower cost. But it's a subject for another day because it's a big subject. But we shouldn't bury changes to things like the child tax credit inside of an emergency bill, having no idea what it will cost us in the future. So I'm going to point to the Utah proposal, as we'll call it for this moment, as out-of-the-box thinking. And I applaud that. I, I And I hope that it can be taken up by the Congress and considered, again, as part of a larger modern federal assistance program to American families that need assistance without worrying about how rapidly escalating national debt and unrestrained spending will mean for our future and our children's future. You see, I'm not a subscriber to new monetary theory. The idea that it doesn't matter how big your deficits are as long as they're in your currency. See, the problem with that is that we are the world's reserve currency. Everybody else's money is pegged to ours. If we continue profit spending, the world will not trust our money. So unless you want the Chinese yuan or the euro to become the world's reserve currency, we need to start to think carefully about how we spend money, when we spend money, and why we spend money which is why I am encouraged by the promises of open debate and amendment to the COVID-19 plan. What would help everyone to build a better package would be to do what a business does in its planning and budgeting process. Each major element in a business plan requires that you state the objective, what you wanna get done, Describe the planned use of the dollars that you're appropriating to to reach that objective. Lay out the timeline from the time that the budget's approved to distribution of the funds to impact of that spending. And lay out the expected outcomes in ways that can be measured and can be measured along the way before you've spent all the money and not gotten the result that you expected. Not only would taking this kind of approach facilitate the debate, the storming, forming, and God, we hope, norming, that the American people long for, but it would allow the administration and the American people to understand the intention and to objectively contribute to the plan's development and to measure its success and wouldn't that be a new way to help the modern american family
0: thanks for listening to reimagine america with joyce cordy you can learn more at reimagineamerica.org got a comment or an idea for a future show Email Joyce at ReimagineAmerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to ReimagineAmerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through ReimagineAmerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or C-SuiteNetwork.com. That's C-SuiteNetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c sweetradio.com.